Please remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 28. <clears throat> A few weeks ago in the evening service, we looked at uh, the passage directly before this one, and tonight the follow-up, both of which are uh, very relevant to our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, sometimes Luke chapter 21 is called the mini-apocalypse uh, because it's very similar to the book of Revelation. Uh, but otherwise, it's called, you know, the, the Sermon on uh, Mount Olivet, uh, on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus uh, spoke these words. So Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 20, this is God's holy word. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people, this people. <clears throat> they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among, the na among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. <clears throat> and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with the foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and you may be seated. <clears throat> Well, my family was in Chicago a few years back, <clears throat> actually while I was at the General Assembly, and, and they were able to come up and visit me. And we had a little bit, bit of time outside of the meeting to spend together and to, to check out <clears throat> the surrounding area, a little bit of Chicago. And we went into the Chicago Architectural Center. And on display was what they titled the world's largest 3D model of Chicago. It was really quite an impressive model of the city. It uh, was about 400 street blocks and 1,300 buildings uh, represented on it. And just to give you an idea, uh, it was about 320 square feet in size. And the Willis Tower, some of you might remember it better as the Sears Tower, uh, on the model was over three feet tall. And so it was a very uh, magnificent model. And it was very interesting to observe the city kind of from uh, a bird's eye view. And what was most fascinating about it was being able to put into perspective just how big the city actually is. 
You see, when you're standing in front of one of the, those tall buildings, not, not of the model, but of, an, of one of the actual buildings downtown, and you take in just how marvelously grand it is, it's like there's nothing else but that building, right? You can't see anything uh, behind the building. But when you look then at the same building on the model, you take note of, of how many more impressive buildings there are just like that one, ones you couldn't see because standing in front of that building, it was so massive and impressive that you couldn't see beyond it. And it helps you, looking at the model that is, it helps you, as the saying goes, not to lose sight of the forest or the trees. And models are really helpful to put things into perspective in that way. And that is what Jesus wants to do for us in this passage. He wants to put the end of the world into perspective for us. And he does so by giving us a model of the end times with his destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. His telling of the destruction of, of, of Jerusalem and the temple. I pointed this out several times in the past, but Meredith Klein puts it this way. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is not the end of the world, but it is the way the world ends. And so Jesus gives us a model for the way that the world will come to a close. And even what the world will be like in between his first and second coming, leading up to the end of the world. Said in other words, Jesus is describing what the world will be like in the last days, leading up to his return. Now, when are the last days? Well, the authors of the New Testament make abundantly clear that Jesus' first coming is what inaugurated or what began the last days that were foretold by the prophets of old. You can read uh, in scripture places like Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, or Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and following. And there you will see them clearly stating that the last days had begun already in their day with the coming of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus tells us what it will be like leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, he is giving us a model of what the world will be like leading up to the destruction of the world as we know it today. And he's telling us what this end time age will be like all the way up to the last day. Now Jesus describes this end time age as coming in three different stages. We covered the first stage a few weeks ago when we looked at the passage directly before this one. A stage which Jesus called the stage of birth pains. And the birth pains have been occurring now for around 2,000 years. Nations have risen up against other nations. There have been wars, tumults, earthquakes, and so on and so forth for over 2,000 years now. But Jesus said regarding those birth pains, Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be all at once. 
They are but birth pains, he says, there in Mark 13.8. Specifically, he puts it as birth pains. Well, today we will look at stage two and three, which are stage two, the great tribulation, and stage three, the return of the Son of Man. And let's take each in their order. First, Jesus tells us about a time of fierce tribulation. Now, you might be confused a little bit because the stage of birth pains was also a time of tribulation. The end time tribulation actually began with the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he was the first to receive that tribulation as he was persecuted unto death. If ever there was a tribulation, it was the tribulation that he himself endured on the cross. And following after him, the apostles also faced tribulation just as Jesus said they would. And Christians throughout the ages have continued to face tribulation. Even in our day, there are, there's great persecution around the world and just as we've been seeing in our series in Revelation, that there is deception and tribulation and there is seduction by the false prophet or by Babylon the Great. And so what's the difference between this first stage of the end times that is termed the birth pains and that of the second stage being the Great Tribulation? Well, Though both describe tribulation, this second stage is distinct because it is a heightened stage of tribulation, which is why it's called the Great Tribulation. Now Luke doesn't actually give us this title. He calls it a time of great distress, or it could be even translated a time of great calamity. But as Matthew records this same event for us, he has Jesus calling it the time of great tribulation. And that has been the term that has stuck for scholars and theologians. And so as Jesus explains this great tribulation, he illustrates it with a prophecy about the soon-to-be destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He says... But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now the desolation that he speaks of, or as Mark and Matthew put it, the abomination of desolation, was first spoken of in the prophecy of Daniel. And that prophecy was fulfilled, at least in part, in the second century before Christ. When Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the holy temple by erecting in it a statue of Zeus and sacrificing unclean pigs in the Holy of Holies. And in Luke's day, by the time we get to the time of the Gospels, almost 200 years after that event, Jesus made the same prophecy, but with respect to the destruction of the temple by the Romans. These Gentile enemy troops would come into the 
holy city and would trample it down. It was going to be a time of great tribulation. Jesus says, alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so you just imagine being pregnant or with small child, especially in the ancient world when an invading country came to wage war, uh, especially in this time when the Romans came to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And so it would have been a very difficult time. Many, he said, would fall by the sword and others would be taken captive while Jerusalem was destroyed. And just as Jesus prophesied in our passage, all of this began occurring in the year 70 AD when the Romans invaded. Josephus, a Jewish historian, recorded one million Jews perishing by famine, pestilences, cannibalism, and by the Roman sword in the destruction of Jerusalem at that time. The other 100,000 were taken captive and carried off to other nations. Remember that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was not the end of the world, but it is the way that the world will end. Jesus uses this example to illustrate what the end of the world will look like. Charles Spurgeon said that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was, quote, a kind of rehearsal of what is yet to be. He went on, that beautiful city was the crown of the entire earth because God had dwelt there. It may be compared to the diamond in a ring, the jewel whose setting was the whole world. And when that jewel was destroyed... And God did, as it were, grind it to powder. It was a warning that the whole ring itself would by and by be crushed and consumed. End quote. The destruction of Jerusalem, you see, was a foretaste of what the end of the world will be like. To return to our analogy, it was an instructional model of the final judgment of this world. As his people approached the skyscraper of the judgment at Jerusalem, they, they would know that the end of all things present is not at hand. It might appear that way because this giant skyscraper is before them, this, this, this massive destruction is before them. And it might seem like the world is coming to an end. But instead they would be reminded that a larger skyscraper stood behind this one. That this was not the end. But certainly was a foretaste of it. And so Jesus was giving them and us a survey of the end time landscape. Sort of a blueprint of the last days being told through the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. 
However, the destruction of Jerusalem was not just a forecast of what lied in the future. It was also a reminder of what had occurred in the past. You see, the Lord called this judgment upon Jerusalem a day of vengeance that fulfilled what was prophesied by many Old Testament prophets. Jesus said it was a wrath against this people, namely against the Jewish nation, because they did not know the hour of their visitation by the Lord. It was a punishment for not turning to Jesus, the Messiah, for salvation from their sins. That people, by and large, continued to make sacrifices at the temple, even though the true and final sacrifice had been made. When Christ the Lord offered himself up as a sacrifice of atonement. And therefore that temple was to be destroyed. And that people judged. We thank the Lord that he is always true and just in his judgments. But also we see in this his great mercy. of Opening the doors unto the time of the Gentiles. But in doing so, he did not forget about the Jewish people. For from both Jew and Gentile, he formed one new man. And so we see both his justice and judgment and wrath, but also his grace and mercy to those who believe in Christ. But what this illustration reminds us of is the fact that everyone deserves the wrath of God on account of their sins. Adam and Eve understood this fact after they sinned against the Lord themselves. And what did they try to do? They attempted to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees in the garden. They recognized that they had become sinners and that he was coming in judgment against them. Judgment against them because of their heinous sin. The translation of him coming in the cool of the day is not accurate at all. He did not come in the cool of the day. As if it was such a nice present time of day. That word is the word ruach. He came in the spirit of the day. He came... In the spirit of judgment against them. And they knew it. And that's why they hid in the trees. But he provided for them a way of escape from his great and terrible wrath. And that escape was not in the midst of the trees. No, rather it came from the shed blood of another. Their sins were atoned for by the animal that was sacrificed to cover their shameful nakedness. Now, that really was the symbol of what truly atoned for their sins. The sacrifice of those animals that covered their sinful nakedness was a type and shadow of the sacrifice of the one and true and only Sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God, namely the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
And so we see that Jesus has given his people a way of escape from this final great tribulation. Just as he gave his first followers a way of escape from the tribulation in the days of Jerusalem's destruction even. He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. You see, he's speaking about a way of escape from destruction. Eusebius of Caesarea records in his church history that the church in Jerusalem recognized the Roman attack against Jerusalem as a sign that Jesus' words were now coming to pass. And so they fled from Jerusalem across the Jordan River and into a city in the mountains called Pella. And the Lord had provided a place of refuge for them to hide. And so too has he provided a way of escape for us to hide from the wrath of God against our sins. That hiding place is Jesus Christ himself. He is our mountain of refuge. And so that way of escape that he provided for them was also an instructional model. Showing how one may escape. The Old Testament through and through speaks of God as our refuge. God as our rock. Our our high place where we can go and seek refuge. Our strong tower. Jesus Christ is our mountain of refuge. Like the shed blood of the animal that atoned for or gave a picture of the atonement of Adam and Eve's sin, so truly his shed blood is what ultimately covers over the sins of his people. And so we are to hide in him from the wrath of God because we are all great sinners. And so we see again how Jesus uses the destruction of Jerusalem to point us forward to the final judgment at his second coming. God's hatred for sin will be finally and climactically expressed, beloved, when his vengeance comes against the ungodly on the day of Christ's return. Revelation chapter 6 describes that judgment Very vividly. And in the vision of the sixth scroll, John writes, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? 
Now that day will be terrifying for the ungodly. Like Adam and Eve, they will seek to hide from the presence of God, not in the trees, but in the mountains, calling the rocks to fall upon them so that they are hid from his wrath. They would rather be crushed by the rocks of the mountains falling upon them than to be in the presence of a God of wrath. But there will be nowhere for them to run. There will be nowhere for them to escape the vengeance of a holy God. Those that are in Christ, however, will be hid in Him. Our mountain of refuge. Now it's important for me to explain momentarily that there are many views out there about the end times. And one of the most popular views is that there will be what is called a pre-tribulational rapture of believers. And what they believe is that all believers in Christ will be raptured up out of the world right before the great tribulation. In other words, the church will not go through the great tribulation. And this is seen as a great comfort to those who believe in this view. But this passage, however, will not allow for that interpretation especially Matthew's version of it. In chapter 24, beginning in verse 21, Matthew records Jesus saying, For then, now this is the same account, the same account that's being recorded in Luke chapter 21. And uh, again, Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so clearly Jesus is not talking here about the destruction of Jerusalem. For history has already provided far worse tribulations than that of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the tribulation that comes at the end will certainly itself be far worse than that one. No, he's talking about the final tribulation here. And who will endure this tribulation? It says that those days will be cut short for the sake of the elect. God's people will most certainly go through the great tribulation. And so great will it be that not even they would endure it, would not, for, if not, he would cut the days short. And so he does so for the sake of his elect. He does not say he removes them from it, but that he cuts those days short for their sake. And so, beloved, your comfort does not come in the fact that you will be raptured, avoiding the tribulation. Your comfort comes from the fact that you have Christ 
as your great refuge to flee to in the midst of this tribulation. My friends, by the amazing grace of our loving God, this fact is a truth for God's people in every age. It doesn't matter if you are alive during that time or not. In every age, Christ alone is the strong tower, the mountain of refuge, the wing under which we take shelter. Anytime God's people are persecuted or face tribulation, experience trials of various kinds, you can have hope because Christ is your hiding place. Jesus in John 16.33 tells his disciples, and that includes you, that in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. It matters not whether we speak of the great tribulation or tribulation in general. We possess the one who has overcome the world. Therefore, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. And so, ask yourselves, where do you turn in times of despair, in days of trouble? Well, beloved, look no further than Jesus Christ. Johann Frank, I think, said it best in his hymn, Jesus' Precious Treasure. He writes, though the earth be shaking, every heart be quaking. Jesus calms my fear. Fires may flash and thunder crash. Yea, and sin and hell assail me. Jesus shall not fail me. Beloved, Jesus will not fail you. Not ever. He will hold you even unto the end. On that great and awesome day when signs appear in sun, moon, and stars, when the powers of the heavens will be shaken and all shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, many will faint with fear because they know condemnation is coming. But not you, beloved. You are to straighten up. To raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And so the third and final stage of the end times is the appearing of the Son of Man. And it is at that time that he will bring his people to be with him forever. In Matthew's account, we are told that when the Son of Man appears, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And beloved, that will be the day of your full and final redemption. 
If you are in Christ, then your redemption, of course, has already begun. Jesus has already redeemed us. That is, he has paid the price for our release from the bondage of sin and Satan. God the Father required this in order to appease his wrath against our sin. Nevertheless, so long as we live in this world, we know that a remnant of sin remains in us. But if and when you see these signs, you are to raise your head for your full redemption is near. At Christ's return, all the benefits of redemption will be applied to you. That is including your resurrected and glorified body, your perfection, your glorification. And you'll be fully sanctified, putting away your body of death to be raised the new glorified body. And sin will be no more, for you'll be raised with an imperishable, glorious body. And here is the best part. This full redemption will enable you, beloved, to see him as he is. Right now, you follow him by faith. And you continue to wage war against the flesh. But then, you will be sanctified fully. And you will follow him by sight. And then you will possess Jesus, your precious treasure in full. Never to be separated from him ever. J.C. Ryle writes, However terrible the signs of Christ's second coming may be to the impenitent, they need not strike terror into the heart of a true believer. They ought rather to fill him with joy. They ought to remind him that his complete deliverance from sin, the world and the devil is close at hand, and that he shall soon bid an eternal farewell to sickness, sorrow, death, and temptation. The very day when the unconverted man shall lose everything shall be the day when the believer shall enter on his eternal reward. And that reward, my friends, is none other than God himself. You see, Jesus has given us in this passage a full perspective on these end times. Now, sometimes we run into some type of tribulation in our own lives. It may be in the form of persecution. It may be an illness or maybe a time of natural disaster. And the suffering that we experience from that tribulation becomes like one of those massive buildings in downtown Chicago that blocks our view of the rest of the city. Our suffering in other words, will skew our view of the bigger picture of God's redemptive plan in this world and in our lives. What Jesus has done for us in this passage is to raise us up to the skyline to view the whole city. So that when we encounter tribulation and suffering, we can know that it's not necessarily the end of the world. Holy Scripture helps us to see then beyond our suffering and pain and gives us a hope of what is to come. 
so that when the great and final tribulation does come and the end of the world is upon us, we can rejoice because we know that our redemption has drawn near. And may that day come quickly. To him be all praise and glory and honor now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we stand in awe of your great power, of your wrath, and of your grace. And we pray, O God, that as we contemplate who you are and what you have accomplished in Jesus Christ, that we would be changed. That those who know you not would be changed. That they would see that there is no salvation apart from Christ. And therefore would recognize the greatness of their sin and how much more marvelous is your salvation and mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. Lord, change us who are already saved, Lord, from one degree of glory to another. As we contemplate you and the things that you've done, Lord, may we be more and more sanctified in our lives. May we pursue the holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. And may we seek in every way to bring you all glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.